0: This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR 8.55am Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true, that if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we
1: can do and everything can change.
2: Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford and Salut Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Today I'm taking a break from interviews, partly because there's a lot of climate action on at the moment and I want to be a part of it. And partly because there are so many good talks that I want you to hear. Later, Professor Kevin Anderson will be talking to Nick Breeze. You can subscribe to Climate Gen, which is his podcast, and it's G E N N, by checking the link in our show notes. Many of us admire Kevin Anderson from Manchester University's Tyndall Centre. He doesn't fly and he goes back and forth to his other job in Uppsala University by train. Also, he is a brave voice among academics appalled at the slow pace of action and the lack of imagination, searching for alternatives. He says, for example, that rationing of fuel would get Europe through the next winter rather than opening up new coal, oil and gas fields. It's a long interview, but I hope you get a lot out of it. We'll start with an impassioned talk about ecocide. It's with Professor Danielle Selemayer from Sydney University. Her recent book, Summertime, is a reflection on our vanishing future, and she's speaking here at the Australian Earth Laws Alliance event in September. The topic was ecocide laws in Australia. What's possible?
3: The normal mindset of criminal law where we think of criminality as being exceptional, just does not describe the world that we're in. We're actually in a world where ecocide is not exceptional. It's not beyond some threshold that is outside the norm of what's going on. It is completely normalised in our political and economic systems, And, and I think that as An activist community, as an academic community, uh, my view is that we have to really take seriously the nature of the catastrophe that we're in and ask ourselves whether the type of slow, incremental, compromise work that we are so used to doing is appropriate to this moment. I think this is the big question that we need to ask ourselves. So, I just want to start by looking at where we are, right? So let's start with the 2019-2025s, which killed 3.25 billion native animals immediately. It's a completely unfathomable number. If we spent 10 seconds with each of those animals, we would be here for a thousand and thirty years, just to give us some embodied sense of what that means. But 18.5 million hectares of land depriving surviving animals of the conditions to sustain life, interrupting relations of mutuality, uh, breaking those virtuous circles that are the nature of ecological relationships that allow them to survive even under conditions of normal extremity which we experience in this country. The, a recent analysis of the current state of the environment in Australia, the state of the environment report that finally came out a couple of months ago, showed that of the 19 ecosystems spanning Australia's land, seas um, and terrestrial Antarctic Territory, 18 of those ecosystems are at risk of collapse. So this is not something that's on the edge of what's happening. Um, as a result of the change in land use over the last two centuries, Australia has the highest uh, soil organic organic soil loss after the U.S. and China. Soil being the absolute foundation of all sustainable life, in the past two centuries, Australia has lost more mammal species than any other continent. More than 100 Australian mammals are listed as extinct or extinct in the wild. And of course, the actual number is going to be much higher than that because of the limits of our knowledge. More than 1,900 Australian species and ecological communities are known to be at risk of extinction or threatened. Uh, If we just talk about koalas, since 1999, the destruction of koala habitats um, has increased. Uh, Since the EP, the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, came in every single year, more koala habitat has been destroyed than was destroyed in the last year. Um, And in New South Wales, shortly before the bushfires in 2019, um, a report found that since 2016, when New South Wales uh, massively ramped up the neoliberalism of conservation biodiversity protection there was an increase by 13 fold of land clearing um, and just a few months before the fires and i'm going to come back to this when I say a little bit about the definition of eco-site that's been proposed. The New South Wales government announced that farmers who had cleared land illegally, even though that we know so much land clearing is legal, those who had cleared it illegally were going to be given an amnesty. So this is the political environment that we're in. Even after the black, some of the the fossil fueled black summer fires uh, killed an estimated sixty four thousand koalas. Um, and significant proportions of koala habitat, like 80% of koala habitat in the Blue Mountains, uh, the legislative and regulatory regime has stopped um, has has failed to stop the further destruction of koala habitat. For example, in uh, southwestern in southwestern Sydney, so. What I'm trying to get across is this notion that ecocide is somehow that we're in this normal space and then there's a threshold that is somehow out there above where we are, that we need to enact criminal law, just completely fails to describe the actual situation that we're in and i and i think that really asks something about this so i wanted to say uh, a few words about multispecies justice which is the framework that we have come to bring to thinking about uh, justice that multi-species justice insists the the exclusion of beings other than humans as subject of justice is both unethical and irrational. Unethical because the myriad bases of uh, the exclusion of beings other than humans from the circle of moral consideration, uh, from not being made in the image of God to not having feelings, to not having language, to not having the capacity to conceptualise their own deaths, et cetera, et cetera, uh, the more we find out about other beings and not just other animals, but also trees and soils, the more we understand that these bases of exclusion actually don't hold as a firm line between the human and the more than human. But irrational, because if the pandemic that we're still living in has taught us anything, there is no possibility of talking about human flourishing or human justice without talking about the flourishing and justice for the more than human world. So uh, even if the bases of separation could be justified, which they can't be, in fact, when we see what happens, when we systematically treat the more than human world as resource for extraction and exploitation is the end of of the possibility of human flourishing. And the existing environmental laws and animal protection laws that we have completely failed to embrace anything like the ethic of multi-species justice because those protections that are afforded uh, continue to adopt a utilitarian logic in which beings other than humans are ultimately defeasible and highly discountable side constraints on human action. And and I think that carries through into the way that we've thought about ecocide law, at least the the definition that has been offered up. So I want to turn to that definition now.
2: We're listening to Daniel selle talking at the Aiella Earth Laws Month on ecocide.
3: To define ecocide as uh, destructive acts that are unlawful is kind of beside the point because the whole point is that we live within legal systems where the destruction of beings other than humans and ecological systems occurs uh, not only under the color of law but also is completely normalized within our economic and political systems. So I want to focus then on wanton, which is defined in the proposed definition as quite reckless disregard for damage, which would be clearly excessive in relation to social and economic benefits anticipated. In other words, and I know that Jojo um, Meta disagrees with this interpretation or this argument that Tony and I have put forward, but I put it forward nevertheless, in other words, it means that ecocidal damage is okay so long as it brings certain humans certain benefits. Um, the panel says that socially beneficial acts might include building housing developments and transport links. Uh, now, Tony's going to go on to talk about the kind of anthropocentric get-out-of-jail-free Framing that is consistent, well, I think you are, Tony, consistent with uh, with the frameworks of, of international environmental law that we've got. But if if we if we take seriously this no, this notion that ecocide is going to be introduced as a fifth crime uh, for the purposes of the International Criminal Court, let's actually look at the logic that is brought to bear with these gravest of all crimes. Now, there's a notion in international law that the gravest international crimes like genocide, like torture, are non-derogable, which means that there are no excuses. So if I quote from the Convention Against Torture, it says no exceptional circumstances whatsoever, whether a state of war or a threat of war, internal political instability or any other political public emergency may be invoked to justify torture. So I think we need to ask serious questions about why is there justifications for side. but we have a basic principle of international law that these gravest of crimes are not justifiable under it. Any circumstances, what does that say about the way in which this logic of utilitarian, defeasible side constraints of destruction of the more than human actually carries through into the proposed definition of ecocide? Now, that, and, and I'm going to finish with this this raises very, very difficult strategic and political questions for us. And I appreciate. And I understand the arguments that are made that unless these very significant compromises, very significant ethical compromises are made in the proposed definition, we haven't got a hope in hell of getting acceptance of the definition of ecocide or the crime of ecocide uh, in the Rome Statute. Um, But... Given what we know about the actual effectiveness of prosecutions under the Rome Statute, I would actually argue that the purposes of the law is more expressive and performative than it is as a basis of actual prosecutions, and I think that there are very high costs in adopting a definition which basically continues to accept the logic of discounting. So then it raises the question, and I think this touches on the final remarks uh, that, um, that Gwyn was making, is what do we do in Australia? Do we try and encode within mainstream law, which is going to involve massive compromises given the nature of the Australian state, notwithstanding the, the change of government, of course we're talking about state governments, Or do we actually take this much more as a people's movement, much more in terms of people's tribunals, much more in terms of social movements, and recognise that uh, this track of legal reform under the type of conditions of crisis, emergency and mass murder, frankly, that we're in uh, really isn't appropriate to the nature of the crime? And I'll finish there. We're
2: listening to Daniel selle talking at the Aiella Earth Laws Month on
3: serrated tussock is a noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter.
2: And now we'll hear This Is Our Song by Tamba Project. We're all good at hiding
1: Running like we don't feel and choosing to silence the things that are hard to hear. It's not in the fighting of the way we divide ourselves
0: we i up we're all responsible if we stop the fearing we'll be unstoppable In this ClimateGen episode, I'm speaking with Professor Kevin Anderson from the Tyndall Centre of Manchester University. This is a longer interview with many, I believe, crucial points for consideration. We discuss our current usage of the available carbon budget for 1.5 degrees Celsius at just under 1% per month. Also, the dangerous and foolish behaviour of the UK Secretary of State for Energy, Kwasi Kwarteng, in trying to reclassify natural gas Methane as a green gas in order to increase investment. Kevin points out that methane is indeed a transition fuel, but only if you want to transition to an unlivable 4 degrees C. Further evidence that these policymakers are not up to the job of tackling the climate emergency. We also discuss the treatment of activism by defenders of the status quo and how the increased activism we are witnessing will grow as the public lose faith in how we are being governed. In March, Kevin and colleagues at the Tyndall Centre released a research paper titled Phase Out Pathways for Fossil Fuel Production Within Paris Compliant Carbon Budgets. I begin by asking Kevin to clarify the critical points of this paper, as he can do it much
1: more clearly than I can. Those periods of time, the the eight and 10 years, which are from the start of 2022, are at current levels of emissions. So if you carried on at current emissions, in, in 10 years, we would have used all of the budget for a 50-50 chance of 1.5 degrees centigrade. If you're looking at a better chance of 1.5 degrees centigrade, say a 67% chance or better, then you have about seven to eight years of current emissions. But obviously if you started to bring emissions down, then you would have a little bit longer. But it was just to give a flavor, the current rate at which we're using the emissions in uh, that we're emitting, in very few years, we will actually have blown the budget for 1.5 degrees centigrade. I think another way of thinking about that, of course, we're not at the start of 2022. We're in May of 2022. We're halfway through May. This year alone, we've already put into the atmosphere somewhere around about 18 billion tonnes of CO2. So for the 50 50 chance of 1.5 degrees centigrade, you look at the carbon budget that remains. Every month, we use up a little less than 1%, about 0.9%, of that budget every month. Each month we're 1% less than we were the month before. But it's quite damning. I think when you think of it like that, That you know, 12 months in a year, that's 12% of the budget gone.
0: Yeah, and, and just given the implications of what we're actually talking about, I mean, these are, this is really our last sort of chance when we're using the emissions budget so fast. And the odds are still terrible. I mean, 50-50. I mean, you, there's a lot of things you wouldn't do with 50-50 odds. And you yeah. know,
1: the, that kind of risk is, is exceptional. But we have been saying that for a long time. And, but we, of course, what we have to remind ourselves, well, we were saying this before for two degrees centigrade. And I think one of the really important things that we've learned in the last 10 years, probably even less than that now, certainly since the the IPCC special report 1.5, which came out in 2018, is that the impacts do significantly change with even just half a degree of of warming. So the impacts at 2 degrees centigrade are considerably worse than the impacts at 1.5 degrees centigrade. As I think when you talk about that in a quick day-to-day fashion, the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees centigrade of warming sounds almost nothing. But I think what we've come to understand is that the impact difference between those two is huge so yeah. beforehand we were saying the chances of holding below two were incredibly slim but what we've actually now said is we really need to be able, holding to 1.5 because of the because of the the dire situation with the impacts of 1.5 but of course at 1.5 degrees centigrade the budgets are even tighter and so we end up with this position whereby We've done nothing about climate change in relation to our absolute level of emissions. They've continued to rise. But at the same time, we've brought the actual temperature we want to not exceed now to a lower level, which has reduced the carbon budget. So it's the worst of both worlds, really. We've we've recognised the impacts look more severe than we'd thought. And therefore, we've brought the the um, the temperature nearer, which has reduced the budget and given us even less space to play with. So this is... I mean, the language of climate emergency is correct, but of course, it's not the language that's informing our policy. That was um, it's just uh, a rhetorical language.
0: That was what I was going to actually say: is that you know, the government, the UK government, and I'll just use it for for context. But the UK government declared climate emergency ages ago, and pathways for countries like the UK um, to transition away from. From fossil fuel have been presented by people like yourself, other scientists um, and yet, we don't seem to be making any progress whatsoever. I mean, is there how many assessments of this kind are there out there that you know of, and how much traction are they getting, given you know how severe this message actually is, these findings rather
1: Yeah. I mean, this particular report focused here on the fossil fuel producing countries, particularly oil and gas, of which there yeah. are, I think it was 88 of them around the, around the world. And some of the, some of the countries are, are genuinely interested in trying to do something about slowly reducing their production of oil and gas. But even those countries are not in line with anything approaching the sort of reductions that would be required to meet our uh, the carbon budgets associated with our commitments so there's still this huge and i would say increasing gulf between what we're prepared to do and what we're saying is actually necessary and one of the ways i think that has been massaged which i think very dangerously is this language of net zero and so a country like the uk and indeed i under- as i understand it in australia now with a new leader they're still thinking they can open new, a few new mines. We, we're looking at the UK, we can expand our oil and gas production. And um, the Norwegian government is looking at 29, has opened up 29 new licenses around the Arctic. So uh, across the world, and, and the same with Biden in the US, you know, across the world, we are seeing the oil and gas producers looking for ever more oil and gas to produce, and indeed coal, which is completely and utterly un- incompatible with our commitments. But we've massaged it with this language of net zero by 2050 that allows us to, to some extent, sort of salve sort of our conscience in the short term by passing that burden on to the longer term. So we do not have to face the the huge political challenges that the actual numbers dictate. UK Secretary of State for Energy, Kwasi Kwarteng,
0: has said recently he wants natural gas to be reclassified as a green energy source to entice investors. Um, in the context of
1: the Paris Agreement, what would your response to that be? Well, I mean, it's, it's just nonsense. It's a sort of flying pig's argument. Um, gas is principally methane. The chemical equations of methane are CH4, the first one being carbon. So 75% of the mass of any quantity of gas is carbon. 75%. So you can't call something that is made up of 75% carbon that when you burn, you get huge quantities of carbon dioxide. You can't call that a low carbon fuel. It is a high carbon fuel. It's just lower carbon than the worst fuels you could possibly imagine, like coal. But it is incredibly high carbon. It also has um, a lot of other leaks in the production of, of methane and the extraction of methane that, that you get methane gases released into the atmosphere which don't last so long, but have a very um, high warming impact in the near term. So it, it in no way should it be classified as a green fuel. It should not be classified as a, as a um, as the transition fuel either. So it is not part of, of the agenda for meeting, meeting our Paris commitments. So he is misguided, completely misguided or been deliberately uh, obtuse in, in making that statement. So there was lots of money around the world being spent on gas. Um, and the rhetorical language around it is that it's a transition fuel. It's, it's, it's probably accurate. It's a transition fuel to four degrees centigrade of warming. It's not a transition to 1.5 to two degrees centigrade of warming. So if if perhaps quasi-quietang, he meant that, that it's a low carbon fuel relative to four degrees centigrade of warming, maybe some legitimacy to his arguments. Well, I think the the Putin issue, I don't want to call it the Russian issue, because I think it's its know—it's you know, it's too easy to, to paint the whole of Russia as if they're all little Putins, which of course they clearly aren't. It's been driven by one particular person with a small acolyte of, of others around him. If we had actually taken some note of what our science repeatedly says, if we had actually converted the rhetorical speeches of our grand leaders into action, it wouldn't matter what Putin did in oil and gas, because we wouldn't be there today. We wouldn't be locked into that. The fact is we have spent 32 years deliberately choosing to prefer rhetoric over action on climate change. So we're still locked into fossil fuels. So the first thing we have to do is have a bit of humility and recognize that our, our deliberate delusion and deception for 30 years has left us in this vulnerable position where we have this price fertility when something happens such as, as, as Putin's escapades in Ukraine. But the second part of that, I think, is there what is our emergency response to this? Is it like the emergency response we had in '39, where we say we've got limited supply? How do we fairly ration it out? No, it's not. We send our leaders around the world to talk to any despot to try and get more oil and gas out of the ground. So, because one despot has decided to do something in Ukraine that, have, that affects oil and gas price um, prices and and security. We then wander off to other despots to find out if they can get more, more oil and gas out of the ground. The way we would have responded or should have responded, in my view, was to say this is this is very much in the near term. It's a demand issue. So if we are really genuinely concerned about people who are suffering, and there are significant numbers of people around the world, and particularly talk about the UK, suffering from fuel poverty as a consequence of this, then our response should have been, well, is it appropriate for for people still to be driving around in very large cars. Is it appropriate for us to be flying in stars for the, for the BAFTA awards worrying? You know, did anyone worry about the kerosene that was being used there that could have been used for something else? So what, we've, what was happening is that we're, we're not affected, we're not implemented any policies on the demand side. We're simply saying we'll look for more supply, which will never be quick. And then, what, why are we doing that? Why have we not actually said, well, how do we ration out fairly a limited supply so that everyone can afford to heat their homes? Why haven't we not done that? Because none of the people, of course, making these decisions are in fuel poverty. None of them are actually feeling this crisis. I mean, we keep, we have this sort of language of the cost of living crisis in the UK that, that includes significantly, of course, the energy issue. But I don't know of anyone that I've heard discussing this in the BBC who will be suffering the cost of living crisis, other than very occasionally they'll bring a poor person in to talk about this, or an average income person in to talk about these issues. But 90% of the time, it's a high, emitter, high emitting, very wealthy person talking about the cost of living crisis and energy insecurity, neither of which they have any, we have, no flavour of. I mean, I, it's not impacting impact me. I can afford the fuel. I can afford the prices going up in the shops. And so I find it worrying that we have not taken any demand side measures to deal with this. Um, so what we should be doing, if, if you ask me to state how do you stay in the carbon budgets and deal with the immediacy of the problems that we face, and they're very real problems. And some people are talking about 30 to 50% of UK households going into fuel poverty, where they cannot heat their homes sufficiently to try and ensure that they're in good, good enough quality for their children to have good health living in those homes. So it's really, really very disturbing with the rocketing price of energy in the UK. And I'm sure this is happening in other countries as well. We should be one, looking to do demand side measures now, which is about how do you allocate out a limited supply in a fair fashion? And two, absolute sort of um, you know, uh, industrial renaissance in, in terms of um, developing renewables. So we should be producing renewables like there's no tomorrow and at the same time doing the demand side measures. Those two... deal with the short term and the medium to long term but we're doing neither we're not doing anything on the demand side and we're wandering around different oil and gas test spots around the world saying please produce some more oil and gas
0: okay and
1: if you take that idea of
0: rationing and the scaling up of renewables and you look around the world of nations and i think a good example is india where uh, Prime Minister Modi has said, we need a trillion dollars to accelerate our transition. Um, And that's obviously met with hostility by the British press, forget it, the kind of response. Mm. Do you think that given the constraints of this report, given where the people who need the help and it scales beyond India, do you think that we just have to now think about finding that budget, handing over the wealth for a collective. It's not solely to help them, it's actually there is a comeback to us in that we get to, we get to survive in the long term.
1: Yeah. I mean, without a doubt, I mean, there's absolutely. again, it comes back to, are we serious about our commitments? And this is what we, we lay out really clear in the report. If we're serious about our commitments, we have to do everything we can on mitigation to reduce our emissions. But that in itself is not going to be enough. Because for the poor parts of the world, they're not going to be leapfrogging over the fossil fuel period or area that we've that we've benefited from. They're going to be using what they have, as their indigenous resources, and we simply don't don't have the carbon budget space for that. So we've got to um, provide some financial wherewithal to help them leapfrog over the, over what we have benefited benefited from. So we're asking them to keep their oil and gas in the ground and to move ahead with with a, um, a you know um, an energy efficient renewable low carbon energy future. And that will initially that will be quite expensive. And so without a doubt, we have to provide the wherewithal for that. I don't see it as aid. I never have done. I see this as reparation. And that is because what we what we have done, at least for 30 years, is to knowingly do almost nothing about our emissions. And I can, no doubt, I can hear the people in the Committee on Climate Change and different MPs in the UK and other wealthy countries saying, well, look how wonderful you know we've been on this. But actually, when you look at our total carbon footprint, if you look at the total carbon footprint for the EU, typically, then it's it's barely changed since 1990. Where it has come down, it's significantly been driven by um, offshoring our emissions to other parts of the world. So the UK, if you take account of, the full carbon footprint of the UK is probably down 15% in 30-odd years, which is less than half a percent a year. So almost nothing. And most of that was driven by um, the shift away from gas to coal. Most of that, actually, or well, a significant part of that, not because of ca- carbon reasons, but because of issues with with is sulfur and wider pollution, and, of course, offshoring our emissions to other parts of the world. And that's what, what all of the so-called progressive countries have done. They've re- They've made no real attempt to change the landscape of their of their um, energy systems. And so we haven't done anything for 30 years, we've used up the carbon budget, and now we're asking the poorer parts of the world who are already suffering the impacts of our our choice to fail to not use their fossil fuels. So there's a, two elements to this. One they have to live with the impacts that we've deliberately imposed upon them, and second we're asking them not to use any more fossil fuels. And so we have to we 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 have to, you know, you know morally and practically, we are obliged to help them leapfrog over this fossil fuel period. And so we have to pay this, make, make these payments. And they're not small. There's a hundred billion per year that we keep arguing about, as I think we should just almost ignore it. It's a crumb that has fallen from the rich feasted table of, of the wealthy countries. And that crumb, we are then arguing about who should pay it. And that's the real skill of these negotiations is you argue about who pays for the crumb, but that's an irrelevance relative to the scale of the challenge that we were, that we face, where we're talking about probably tens and tens of trillions of pounds are going to be required for this transfer to a low carbon future. To do it in the timeframe to stay within 1.5, I disagree with virtually all the economists on this, that it's going to be the sort of enthusiastic economists for this transition. I don't think it will be cheap. I think it will be very, 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 very costly, but much less cost than not doing it. I think we've underplayed the cost of making these transitions. There's not just the economic cost, but the social disruption that is required, particularly in the wealthy parts of the world, as we rapidly make this transition. Now, if we'd made it earlier, we could have made it in a, in a much more sort of measured, careful, you know, staged fashion. When you're faced with an emergency, the emergency measures typically are challenging. And we are in a climate emergency. As I say, every month we're using just under 1% of the remaining carbon budget. It's completely shocking. You look at the carbon budget, you
0: look at the the odds that you've given, and then you say, well, you know, it's too expensive. I mean, it's, it's insane that we just take that away and just say, right, what do we, literally, what do we have to do within the, the confines of this emergency and, and go for yeah. it? Yeah,
1: I, I, I find it, although I'm being buoyed up by how civil society, a whole, and I've spoke about this before on many occasions, a whole sort of messy gaggle of civil society groups, and including in that some academics and others as well, I think have got a handle on on what the scale of this challenge is, and are calling for really radical change. The established voices, I think, and that in that I'm including lots of senior academics, I think are the problem, and they are the new climate skeptics, in my view. It's not that they deny the science, but they deny what the mitigation is necessary to align with the science and the commitments that they have made, that we have made. To me, that is a real issue where I hear meeting after meeting, where you hear these grand words and wonderful speeches, and it's just hidden behind the sorts of nonsense we're hearing from the UK about gas being a green fuel, behind uh, technologies in the future, removing the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. All of that is about avoiding the radical changes that are required today.
0: Last year, we discussed the work you did around elites wielding too much power in society. And they are in large part supported by academics and other enablers. And in recent months, we've seen a rise in scientists protesting all the way around the world. I was contacted by a group last week in Argentina and other parts of Central America who are launching a campaign calling for climate justice through debt cancellation to enable a faster response to climate and so on. Does this growing movement of academics, climate scientists indicate a shift you were alluding to then when it's become even in the uk in america so just mentioned south america is very it's becoming more overt and
1: would you say that isn't a shift in the enabler i think so i mean i think i think like a lot of times we can only really tell in retrospect but it's certainly in line with what we were suggesting that we uh, and i'm not too surprised because at some point you can no longer just keep spouting the same rhetoric hiding behind the same sort of facades because i mean initially we delude us, we're deluding others and we're deluding ourselves but i think a lot of the scientists involved in this they quite quickly see, see through that sort of delusion and they start to think well, actually this isn't this isn't looking very likely we aren't moving in the right direction you know, the numbers paint a picture for them and, and i think when we're all like this actually i mean we all we all paint a picture that comfortably fits with our worldview. but as we as we redo that, as we re- reassess that re- repeatedly, eventually it doesn't fit with our worldview. And I think those people whose whose lives are particularly spent working around the numerical framing of this, and indeed the political framing to some degree, eventually you can't hold those two. You know, the worldview that they that they have doesn't fit with the numbers and the analysis that they're, that they're doing. And I think we're seeing that with quite a lot of the scientists um now saying that this just doesn't look in any way viable um we need to do something radically different and so a lot of them now are are protesting because their voices are not being heard but they are still being drowned out i think in part by still some quite senior academics and civil servants and policymakers who still want to sing this sort of green growth tale um and i think that's supported significantly by the media as well and that's why I'm saying to me, that particular cohort, well-meaning though they are, are more dangerous, as I see it, more dangerous than the extons, the BPs, and the shells who have been deliberately undermining climate change for years. And so I think that group, to me, are the, are the climate skeptics, are the ones we have to overcome. And of course, that cohort, that expert cohort, are the ones that link very much with those elites that we talked about, the Davos cluster.
2: 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. They're listening to Professor Kevin Anderson in a Climate Gen interview with Nick Breeze in the UK.
0: The activism that I've seen over the last few weeks has been fascinating in the UK of uh, breaking into meetings and the lunches that Quasi Quarteng is actually hosting with um, you know, fossil fuel producers in Africa and stuff like this has been has been um, amazing to watch. And also in the contrast to how the government is clamping down and really trying to criminalize these every kind of calling out of, of what really they should be listening to do you think yeah. that in some respects, the papers you're producing are almost like um, defence testimonies for these activists when
1: they're getting dragged into court at the moment? Well, I mean, the, yeah. <laughs> I'm very pleased about that. And I don't I don't shy away from that, that academic work can be used by all sorts of people. You know, the BPs and shells can use this work and so can the activists. And as as my view, as long as they're using it appropriately, that's that, I mean, our job as academics is to put the information out there and people will use it. I'd rather be used appropriately. And I think if it is used as a defence in court cases and elsewhere, then that is absolutely fine. Um, And indeed, I've been engaged over many, many years now in various court cases where I try to remain, as as an academic, I try to remain independent and almost indifferent to the people that are bringing the case or or defending a situation. It could be about airport expansion or whatever, or protest. My job, as, as far as I can see as an academic, is simply to inform the decision makers in that legal process. But I'm pleased when they are bringing this work in and when they are trying to bring academics in to, to engage. And it, and, I, and I find it disturbing and interesting that in the law that we still, we will protect things that are causing incredible damage. And we will prosecute things that are trying to stop that damage being caused. And I do think there's a role here. And I know there's some early signs of this. There is a role, I think, for for, for law, for the legal system to be for those involved to get much more involved in this in this debate um I don't know I mean it's not my my realm at all, but I wonder historically has that happened in in other major changes so you look at the suffragettes and so forth I mean lots of those were imprisoned and of course in the end their cause was was seen to be appropriate and and changes were made and you wonder is that I, I don't know but how did the legal profession engage in that? did they did they have any part to play because i wonder is, is there a role for for them thinking about these issues today i know there are barristers and so forth other people trying to trying to bring these issues you know to a higher profile within the legal system but at the moment it seems to protect the people causing the damage and not the people that are trying to prevent the damage being caused i mean the first
0: time i interviewed you was in paris was in paris at the cop and, and i think it was about a 55 minute interview i found the the recording the other day and I, th- I think worryingly, I think I was wearing the same shirt uh, that had some red in it. Oh, did it? Okay. No, but you did wear that in the in the second session with Hugh. Oh, did it? Okay. But since then, I was disappointed because, unfortunately, you're kind of saying the same things and we're, we're still in pretty much in the same boat. You know, some things have changed. And now you're issuing a report with, with, with this is like the last chance saloon if we want to actually do this. So what are the signals that have emerged since that period that you would say is strikingly different today, hopeful or not hopeful? Real signals.
1: signals. I mean, I mean, what you, the language you use? Then the last sort of last chance saloon. Um, I remember, right? I gave a talk for the Welsh government back in two thousand and six. I think I think, that's what, I think that's what they called it: last chance saloon. It was, it was something like last orders in the last chance last chance saloon. So it was, and so, I think we have to be careful with that sort of language, and it has to be caveated um, if we are to use it. We're not in the same situation we were in twenty fifteen. I mean, since 2015, we've put out a huge amount of carbon dioxide. So we put out not far, in di- not far different to the budget that we have left for 1.5. So we, we, you know, at 40 odd billion tons a year, we are using the budget up at a phenomenally fast rate. So the scale of the emergency we face today is considerably more challenging than it was in 2015. It was very challenging in 2015. But you know it, there were there were options then that you had which are now off the table. And every year we choose to fail, or and I think this is an important point. Every year we choose to do something that makes us feel okay, and we say we're making a step in the right direction. The point, the reason I'm raising that is because I regularly hear that well, it's better than doing nothing, but it is still a step backwards. A step in the right direction that isn't a large enough step in the right direction is a step backwards, just not as far back as it would otherwise have been. So, we're not making progress, we're just not regressing as fast as we could be. Um, And so, I think that's important to bear that in mind that every year we fail, we go backwards and it gets more challenging. And so, the scale of that emergency now, the sorts of changes that are required, are so deeply profound. I mean, they were very difficult then, but they're they, they beg questions about every single facet of contemporary society. But do we hear that debate amongst the people that are controlling the the, the established message? Of course we don't. We don't hear anything like that at all. And we don't hear enough people, though as you said, we are, we are hearing more people now, um, decrying the nonsense that is spouted by by that establishment, by those elites. I would argue that Mark Kahn is, um, and, and though I think, there's some wonderful work coming out of the committee on climate change at a technical level i would argue the overall framing is very much part of the problem and so a lot of these sort of senior groups involved in these discussions i think are unprepared to say in public what they what they know privately and sometimes what they tell me privately i mean i have mentioned this on on many occasions but to me that is a real concern where where experts in the field particularly academics because we are paid to be honest and direct about our research when we say things in private that we're not prepared to say in public and we will sweeten the pill in public, you know, it's hugely sweeten the pill in public. And I think that's deeply arrogant of often mm. very decent people that we think that the, the public can't deal with it, the policymakers can't deal with it, but somehow we can. I think we just have to, as, particularly for us as academics, just say what our conclusions are directly and clearly with the assumptions made transparent and all the caveats made, made clear.
0: In Paris, I'd say the civil society response was was almost euphoric that there was some kind of agreement that came out of it, and, and quite sedate. And then you fast forward to Glasgow, and I would say it was a, it was like a militarized compound with very angry people, you know, organising their marches around the city, and but not really being allowed near the actual conference centre. Do you think that that is part of the visible side now that's going to grow and? Is that the right way for us to go? Is it the only way for us to go, is to continue to build on this momentum of activism?
1: I mean, I doubt it's the only way, but I think it's one of the very important ways because it catalyzes changes elsewhere. It doesn't just mean that other people join that activism. It may make other people think differently and approach things in a different way. But I also think controlling activism, and again, let's be clear, I'm talking here well outside my area of expertise. This is my concern as as a citizen and my wider reading. But as I say, controlling activism, allowing a certain level of activism, then controlling it is a real skill of maintaining the status quo because it it makes us think that we're open to to think differently. And so if we look at what happened in Glasgow, so there's a huge march in Glasgow, very large numbers of people involved. Where did it finish? It finished in the park. Not in the huge, whatever they were, 15-foot wire ghettoed blue zone where all the negotiators were. And it's because it was allowed to go to the park. But is that activism? Is that a protest when you go along the route you're told to go to the park where you sort of fizzle out and you're not seen and filmed and heard banging on the big 15-foot blue gates that lock the negotiators away from wider society? Now, I'm not suggesting that it should be breaking them down and, you know, and a sort of a, a Trumpian approach. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I do think perhaps turning up there and and seeing that those protests at the gates of the place where the negotiators are saying things like, oh, gas is a clean transition fuel, that we need to hear those voices in the ears of the negotiators, of the policymakers, not as they as they fade out in the parks of Glasgow. So I think there's a step to be made away from protests that are organised by the status quo to fit with the established views, to give the sense of allowing protest. And the next phase of protests, which is actually trying to disrupt those negotiations in as constructive fashion as possible. I would never be suggesting violence or anything like that in any way, shape or form. But it does seem to me that the voices have been so far sufficiently controlled not to change the the language and the space within which negotiations negotiators are talking. I mean, the sort of headspace in which, within which they're talking, which allows quasi-Kartang to say, oh, you know, gas is green. You know, that, that, that is, I mean, that is in 2022, that a highly educated member of the British cabinet can say that, can suggest that we should be reclassifying gas as a green fuel tells us something about how come the status quo is very much locked into the old way of doing things.
0: To the last century thinking, really,
1: it is, and I think that's one of our big problems. I think a lot of the, and again, it's language I've used before, but a lot of the people involved in trying to trying to think about what we're going to do about climate change, they're somewhere between 1970 and. Nineteen eighty. I think some of them are still in eighteen seventy. Yeah, there's no systems thinking going in into their development of policy and their thinking about these issues. There's no real understanding, as I can see, about the sorts of impacts that play out around the world, about the actual science underpinning this, the social science underpinning this issues of equity, and indeed, of course, the bit that was bang on about the opportunities for change as well. There are, you know, that this is a, an issue which is probably the most system-oriented challenge that we've yet faced, and we have people who just look at it in a very siloed disciplinary fashion. And of course, universities have been part of that problem. That's how we've developed in universities. We have departments and very siloed reductionist thinking, and it's been phenomenally successful. But I don't think we've had to face a system-level challenge like climate change before. And at the moment, we look to be ill-equipped. We're certainly ill-equipped at the policy level. The policymakers are simply not up to the job. But I'm not sure that they're being helped a lot by our academic community either, particularly because we still are deeply reductionist in our way of thinking about these issues. We, we need, to, I don't want to play out suggest anyone provides an appropriate role model, but someone like FDR with that much, a much bigger systems interpretation of the challenges he was facing, and I'm not saying I agree with everything he, he was suggesting, but he, he was prepared to think about things in a much more sort of open and I would argue radical way and was phenomenally successful. I mean, he had, wasn't it four terms of office? Yeah. He didn't have four terms of office because he followed a few focus groups because he had Mori do a quick poll of a few people. But it was cogent, caring, empathetic leadership. And, yeah. it, and I think it'd be fair to say that he did have a more systems oriented view of the world, the world in which he was operating, anyway.
0: But prepared to take the, the level of action
1: required to meet the challenge. And that was. Yes, and to argue for it. I mean, these yeah. arguments were pretty. I mean, they were they were very, very challenging for the day. But who do we who do we see? Do we see that today? Do we see that in the UK's Prime Minister? Do we see that in in many of the EU countries? Do we see it in the US? I mean, it's it's, it's there's, there's, there is absolutely no leadership on climate change with any of these so-called progressive countries.
0: If you take that point, and in the last few weeks we've had this heat wave in Europe, we've had a heat wave in India and Pakistan. And these things are are now tangible and um, visible and people do see it. And then there's a greater understanding that things exist like cascading tipping points. There's a lot of work that people grasp the, the broad bones of it and think, hang on a minute. You know, if these things are happening at an exponential rate, then perhaps we are past the point of really doing anything but people do lose hope, and I read it on comment feeds yeah. online. And But is there, is there still room for this exponential social
1: response, do you think? Well, there are two bits to that, as I it. anyway. I, I, I don't like the doomsday narrative. I've been accused of it, but I completely don't. I, it's not one I accept at all. Uh, you know, if we carry on as we are today, then the, the prospects don't look promising. <laughs> and look, I mean, they look really dire. But we don't have to carry on as we are today. And then what some people say, and this is what the deep doomsday sort of view of this, is that we're already past all the tipping points. But what I like about the uncertainty in the science, and I don't mean the uncertainty about, you know, is climate change caused by reducing, by you know, um, emitting carbon dioxide, all of that we know. But we don't know exactly what the response to the climate is going to be. So we don't know if we've passed the tipping points or not. And because we don't know that, Then it's worth trying everything we can to avoid passing them. The lower the temperature that we can hold to, the less chance that you pass tipping points. And so, you know, it's it's almost an excuse or a defence for inaction to say, "Oh, we're too late." Well, we don't know we're too late. The science tells us that the more CO two and other greenhouse gases we put in the atmosphere, the higher the temperature goes. And we know that with a high degree of certainty. What the science can't tell us is exactly where these tipping points are. And so there is everything to play for. Because if as the temperature goes up, the chance of passing the tipping points is greater. When you pass some of these tipping points, they may well cascade. And then then you get in a position where, well, what what do we do now? And I don't think there's anything we know that we could do. And so there is everything to play for now. And so that's a very hopeful narrative. That's a narrative that it doesn't matter whether. We have passed the 10 points which because we don't know, but we know the consequences are dire if we do. And therefore, what, what action does that leave you with? Everything you can possibly do today. And that's what we should be doing. But instead, what we're we doing? Nothing that we can do today other than increasingly eloquent speeches and more rhetorical, technical salvations in the future. That, that's all we're doing. We're not, we're not trying to reduce our emissions. You know, we had reductions as a result, result of COVID, but they went up again the following year. They'll go up again this year. Probably next year will be higher again. So 20 we we'll get on to 30, 33, 35 years after we had the first IPCC report. Emissions will very likely still be rising. And we'll all still be blaming someone else. We'll be blaming other countries, other sectors, other people. We won't be looking at this and saying, well, what do we need to do? And that we is very important in that, in that, I mean, we have to be very careful about this collective we in that most emissions arise from the, the lives that relatively few of us have normalized, but the impacts are felt at least initially less by us and more by those people who are not emitting or emitting very little. And, and also have very, even in the wealthy countries, have very little agency for change.
0: Okay. Well, look, Thank you very much. That's um, very informative. It's been good to talk to you. And, yeah, uh... and you as ever.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Climate Action Radio Show at Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. I'd like to thank our speakers today, Professor Danielle Selamayeur of Sydney University and Dr Michelle Maloney, who is the dynamo behind the Australian Earth Laws Alliance. You can hear many more talks celebrating our relationship with the living world, indigenous knowledge, science, law, and ethics and the arts if you just go to A-E-L-A website. Thank you also to Nick Breeze for permission to broadcast his interview with Professor Kevin Anderson. You can find more of his work at Climate Gen, and that's G-E-N-N. Lastly, I took a break this week, maybe next also because we need more help doing the original work. If you are motivated by climate awareness and would like to contribute to our radio show, please contact me through this number at 3CR three CR 8377. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and
0: good luck. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's cold.
1: It's cold. It's
2: cold. Tune in every Monday at 5 pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. 3CR Community Radio.